Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. The future of media is very, very much dependent on user-generated content. We're all publishers. That's not a phone in your pocket. It's a mass communications device. And when I look at StockTwits and the way peers were interacting with each other, and I think about the content and stories that's generated in those messages every day, there's just an incredible opportunity to glean intelligence from all of us without having... Not that there's anything wrong with professional reporters, but without having people whose job it is to interpret those things. We can interpret ourselves. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 45. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ian Rosen. Ian is CEO of StockTwits, the largest social platform for investors and traders, with more than 1.5 million registered users posting 200,000 messages daily. Prior to joining StockTwits, Ian co-founded and was CEO of Evan Financial, the supply-side platform for online financial products. Before that, he served as general manager of MarketWatch, Inc., one of the largest multi-channel markets and personal finance sources globally through 20%-plus annualized growth. Ian has managed large financial data businesses at both Thomas Reuters and Dow Jones and has held positions at Goldman Sachs, Accenture, and other firms building financial data-focused products and businesses. Ian, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this because I know I'm going to learn a ton. And a quick shout out to my friend, uh, David Siegel, who connected us. And yeah. uh, I'm really a big believer in connections. And I'll, we'll talk about that hopefully a little bit later. But for now, what prompted you to move from what appears to be more fi- uh, conventional work, if you will, in finance, whether it's in some of the larger firms or even in the reporting and news industry, but some of the more well-known names to kind of pivot into the social space, specifically to service the, uh, you know, the markets and trading? Yeah. Well, I've always been involved in financial media, primarily in the beginning in a B2B sense. And then with MarketWatch, obviously moved to B2C. Moving to social, there really were two big factors for why I made this move. One, which was probably the biggest, is I just genuinely believed in the opportunity. I've been long a a fan of the company StockTwits. I've been an advisor to the company for many years. I've been a little bit of a critic in that I felt that the company should be a lot bigger. So this opportunity was was a big part of it. And then my view, even when I was in more traditional media, has been, and you can see this much more playing out in the last few years, but I'd say four or five years ago, it wasn't quite as clear that the future of media is very, very much dependent on user-generated content. We're all publishers. That's not a phone in your pocket. It's a mass communications device. And when I look at StockTwits and the way peers were interacting with each other, and I think about the content and stories that's generated in those messages every day, there's just an incredible opportunity to glean intelligence from, from all of us without having, not that there's anything wrong with professional reporters, but without having people whose job it is 
to interpret those things. We can interpret ourselves. And I, I was attracted to that. Interesting. So tell me a little bit more about that story piece that you talked about, because, you know, for the uninitiated, and I would consider myself largely in that space, you know, you typically think of trading and markets and all as sort of like this, this entity, you know, people are buying and selling, people are engaged in interactions, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a storyline per se. And I recognize that you'll have business stories, you'll have stories about CEOs, you'll have stories about what businesses are doing or not doing and trends in the market and all of that. But my sense is that you're talking about stories on a more personal level as well. In other words, individual stories, not just, let's say, the the big and the, the wealthy and the famous and all of that. So am, am I right in what I'm describing? And so what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's both of those things. When I was at MarketWatch, we had a an ad salesperson who, in frustration, in front of a large group of uh, media buyers, who was ta- they were they were concerned about you know financial news isn't our thing, and he looks at them and he yells, "Financial news is news. News is financial news." And what he meant by that, even though it was kind of just off the cuff, was that the stories, the media stories that drive the world, are in many cases either initiated in almost all cases supported by the economics and, and financial and corporate communities that revolve around them. These, it's very difficult to, to untangle corporate stories and financial stories from politics or people or anything else, for better or for worse. So when when I look at StockTwits, stock, and many of our users, the reason they love StockTwits and they spend so much time on our site is because there's a real-time constant commentary of what's happening in the world as seen through the lens of companies. So I'm trying to think of an example, but when we look at the end of the day, you know, what happens with this brand new iPhone that comes out and and whether it's going to change society because you can do this new thing, whatever that is, whether it's published on Twitter or whatever, that that capability initiated in in a corporate environment. Somebody thought, you know what, we think the world is going in this direction and we're going to make some bets on that. And that those things are enabled by capital and from the sort of venture capital who decides in this like wild idea and bets on 10 of them or 20 of them or a hundred of them to the decisions where, you know, an Apple or, or an Amazon bet billions of dollars on something because they're going to change the trajectory of the world in some way. So the, the storylines that are happening in stock puts. One of the first things that I felt we should do when I when I took this role was not everyone wants to participate in in this social conversation, but but what's happening day to day is unbelievably interesting. And and we ended up our our head of content when we were hiring for that role a few years ago. I must have had a hundred financial journalists apply for that role, and we ended up hiring somebody who spent uh, the last few years at a, a viral cat video site because he's a great storyteller. Uh-huh. And I said, listen, he's like, I don't know anything about finance. I said, great, super. Dive in, read what's going on on stock puts and see what you think is interesting that's happening. And he came out with this, you may remember a couple of years ago, there was this uh, story where Mylan was overcharging for the for the EpiPen and, and a lot of people were, remember that story? It was a huge, yep. Yep. Right? but it started with with Mylan, right? And and can they do this? And, and the stock was being obviously affected and they had this CEO who was kind of a jerk and and he wrote this incredibly interesting story, which wasn't about like, oh, Mylan's numbers 
you know, turned down today. It was more like, you're not going to believe what this guy's doing. Yeah. So that's what I meant. It's so interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, I, there, there are a hundred ways to take this. I'd be interested in, in understanding, let's say, for example, where you go on a more macro level. You mentioned Apple, but I was thinking even, for example, the whole situation in England right now with Brexit. And, and, and the, the, the no confidence and all of that that's going on there. And at the same time, I was imagining stories for, let's call it the little investor who may be using your platform to share his or her, you know, horror stories or successes or what they think is going to be, you know, moving up and down and all of that. But before we get into that, if you'd like to even go there, one question that I have or one comment that I wanted to make first is that you said something about your, I don't know if you said it was the content director, but this individual who you talked about hiring who didn't have the background. I thought that was fascinating because in my line of work as a coach, so I work with clients of a variety of different backgrounds. And frankly, because my background is, is in education, unless I'm working with a teacher or a principal, I do not share a common background with most people. The only thing right. I share is a passion for leadership, a passion for connecting with people and, you know, being the best leader that you can be and having the most influence and driving success, however that looks for individuals. And so what I've learned is that to me, being a great coach is not about coming in with all of the technical know-how. It's right. about coming in with ask, the ability to ask the right questions, to raise awareness, and then to hold people accountable. In essence, that's what right. I do. And so those skills are universal in the same way that this individual was able to take content he wasn't familiar with and yet develop a story around it because storytelling was his passion and his skill. You found that to be most valuable to you. And to me, that's really interesting. And I suspect, and you can talk about this if it's true in your company or if you see it elsewhere, but I suspect many companies are less interested, even though the resume is typically designed to focus on what technical skill and knowledge I've accumulated over the years. We're interested in the soft skills. We're interested in the ability to transfer knowledge. We're interested in the ability to take what you've learned, but, but kind of own it. And then bring it to us and, 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 and allow your creativity and allow your uniqueness to really add value to our company. I, I strongly agree with that. I, we still have the luxury, you know, we're not an enormous company of hiring for people and not necessarily just for skills. Obviously, if you need, you know, 500 people that know how to code iOS, then, then you're in a different position. But, but we try to find people and I very much... I mean, I consider this one of the things that I'm pretty good at. People that are going to have the ability to learn, the ability to ask the right questions that are dedicated to the mission of what we're doing, not, not like in a rah-rah sense, but that they're, when I interview engineers, for example, I can't really test, their knowledge has been tested before they get to, to me. I, I usually ask them like, why here? You know, what, what is it about this place that you're into? Are you into like what we're trying to accomplish? Are you into the people? Are you into the culture? Like why? Why are you interested in doing this? Because I want to understand who they are. And with this this individual that I was that I was referencing, I won't I won't embarrass him too much. Uh, but I mean, this is a guy who I immediately liked him. I thought he just had the innate curiosity that was going to make this him successful. And then he came back to me and he said, "You know what? I can't do this. I don't know anything about finance. I'm, I'm withdrawing." I said, "Wait a minute. Come back in." And then. He came in and he, he just wrote some headlines on a Friday. And then I got a little bit cold feet. I'm like, you know what? This is really going to be a big project. Let's, let's maybe just have you be a freelancer. And then he came back to me and said, you know what? Let me write one of these stories and you tell me, tell me what you think. And you wrote this amazing story that I was referencing. I think if you can 
you know, people talk, there's obviously IQ and, and, and EQ. And I, I wish I could remember who to quote here because I don't remember who said it, but I'll confess it wasn't me. But somebody, somebody was representing uh, like AQ, like the adaptability quotient, right? We have a lot of people here that they were dynamic organization in a dynamic space skills to your point the skills you need change and that and we're not swapping out people every five minutes so you have to have people that can dive on a particular project and, and come up to speed and and learn it and when i watch a lot of my peers like i obviously work in a very dynamic technical part of the world but you know i mean back home where i live i, I interact with a lot of uh you know doctors and lawyers and you know, not, not that they're not at the top of their field, but it's just a little bit less sort of dynamic day to day. Like the problems that I face on a given day might be totally different than have ever been seen by anyone before. Whereas that's not always true for, for all professions. But what I find is that there's still a very heavy premium being placed on traditional education for their kids and, and for, for the future. Whereas when people come in, I barely even look at their resumes. I, I don't care where they went to school. I mean, I care a little bit in the sense that it speaks to, you know, some discipline or, or maybe some raw horsepower in terms of like computing power up there. But that's it's just a much, much, much smaller piece of what I think is going to make somebody successful at our company or in the world. Then I think there's a lag, there's a, a big lag right now where somebody comes out of a, a school with a degree in how to do some business function. I can tell you when, by the time they walk into this office, that's not going to help them. Yeah, it's so interesting. You have to be able to adapt to the problems that are in front of you and people that are very adaptable and curious and can learn and can come up to speed. Those are those are the gems that that you hold. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I actually write about this in my book Becoming the New Boss. I talk about a story when I was finishing my first master's degree. These are educational degrees because as I mentioned before, that's my background. And so I remember the professor, this was, my wife is from Chicago. So I had grown up here in, in, in New York and finished my degree out there. And the last course that I took was in a small campus in Schaumburg, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's up a little bit north and west of the city. And it's right near Motorola. And so the professor who was giving the course uh, was also a friend of an executive at Motorola at the time. And he said that his executive friend had told him, you know, you guys in education, you have it all wrong. And he said, the reason for that, I'm not here to bash on education. This isn't our focus, but it's interesting because you mentioned this. <laughs> you must have been like, great. You, you, yeah, right on. Is that the, the fact that you guys are teaching everybody to think independently, no cheating. I want to know what you know. And it's not about collaboration. Now, this was in the late 90s. So we're going back 20 plus years at this point. But the idea is already then there was the sense that education needed to reform in order to meet the needs of an adaptable environment. And so if you're in the educational space, you know something called 21st century learning, which is a funny name. And you think about it because it's very progressive and futuristic. But if I would have told you in 1905 that I'm going to teach you what 20th century learning is going to look like in retrospect, that would seem kind of silly. You know what I mean? But either way, it was somewhat of a risky title. But the concept was how do we create more collaboration? through cooperative learning, through engagement, through project-based learning, things like that. And if you're familiar, I don't know if you're familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, it's like a pyramid-based, but it basically talks about different cognitive levels in which we engage from knowledge and comprehension, analysis, synthesis, all the way up. And the the uppermost one used to be evaluation, and it has since become creation. 
And the idea is, is that we want to get our kids to become more creative. We want them to be making things. We want them to be able to take ideas and do something more with it. Don't just tell me what are its components. Don't just tell me how can I take disparate components and synthesize them together. Don't even tell me how you would evaluate or rank one, two, three. Tell me how you're going to create something out of something else. It has a lot to do with what's the value of a human in a world where so many of those other tasks can be can be replicated by software. Well, that's true also. And I think that's come that's come to form much more recently, even in greater amounts with AI and all of that. But I think the key essence is that we're looking for people, like you said, it's not that they're coming in as a finished product and now you could, so to speak, ride the position for the next 20, 30, 40 years because you have the tools. That may be it may have been true in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, way back when, where you came in, you were prepared, you knew what to do, and the industry was relatively status quo you know, with some adjustments, some modification, but it basically was the same kind of business. It's such a dynamic and an adaptive type of environment in which we're operating today. If you don't change and if you don't learn, frankly, you perish. So it's it's just a fascinating evolution that we're describing here. When people ask me, how did you decide to like get into to stock this? I'm like, oh, I always wanted to run a social media site from when I was a little boy, <laughs> which is obviously ridiculous because right. this existed. I mean, you have to- right. Maybe the platform didn't exist, but the concept may have existed. And that's also interesting because someone like me, I consider myself to be introverted. I try not to use that against me because I think there are a lot of really great things that introverts bring to the table. But for me, engaging on social is not necessarily supernatural. You know, I'm not the kind of person, and even if I want to, my family gets really upset if I try to take pictures of all of us and post it. They just don't want to be out there in the public space. It's just it's what it's the yeah, way I have I to roll, that. you know, and, and many people deal with that. On the other hand, it's a great platform because it creates opportunity for engagement. Like I would never be able to share our conversation without this platform in a meaningful type of way. Nobody would know about it. Nobody would be able to engage with it. Nobody would be able to comment on it, all these kinds of things. So it's a right. fascinating, wonderful thing. But at the same time, the platforms will always be changing. The question is, are we sort of you know, uh, on the one hand, are we asking for those kinds of changes? Are they the kinds of things that we see will help us and sort of drive the market in that direction? And when they do exist, how do we take advantage of it to the benefit? So, so I'm curious to know, what are some tips that you would give to someone since you are so embedded in social, even though you're focused specifically in a particular market, but what are some things that you have found that help people to engage that help people to get the information that they're looking for and really take advantage of the platform. Yeah. So in, by the platform, I think you mean social. Social in a broader sense, but it could be your platform as well. Feel, f- yeah, feel free to bring it back to stock to it if you'd like. <laughs> I, I think it's the same across. And, and my wife is, by the way, the same. Like she, It's not natural to her to want to share her thoughts and her feelings and pictures of, of the family and things like that. And you say, what do you get out of that? Like, what's the what's the return on that? And I think the answer to your question is somewhere in there. It's my ability to engage and collaborate, which does come with a responsibility now to sort of manage that persona in a way that really was not required of non-celebrities until, you know, several years ago. And it's funny, I don't know if you have kids, but like I watch my kids growing up natively in social where they have a they have an unbelievable ability to sort of project their how they want to be seen in a way that was not even required. And, and they just have, they've developed that. But I think that the, the ability to get answers and to get, to get knowledge 
is so high, but it does require you to engage with that community. And I, I always, I hate when people talk about phones. Like it's not a phone, it's a, it's a portal to all of human knowledge. I mean, all of human knowledge is in my pocket at all times, instantly available. That's never been true in, in history, right? So the ability for me to go online to a, a group of people, in our case, and investors and say, you know what, I'm in this situation, what would you guys do? And to get unfiltered, unvarnished opinions. Now, we're a moderated community, which obviously makes stock a little bit easier to feel like you're part of a community that trusts. I mean, Twitter, I wouldn't listen to everybody on Twitter about what, what they say. But, but whereas 20 years ago, for me to get advice, I could go to the person in my company who is the expert at that. Now I can go and have a conversation with experts in the world. And there's a tremendous meritocracy in social about ideas and opinions. I mean, unfortunately, there's also, there's also amplification of things that are just like interesting or funny, regardless of whether they're true. But, but the true ones certainly get amplified. And there are voices and people I know who have built their entire careers on the back of just being smart and people recognizing they were smart on social and, and building up their reputation among other smart people, whereas they wouldn't have had even the access to those people. But all of a sudden, one person likes this, this message, and then 10 people like this message. And then, you know what, this really well-known economist who's on our platform likes this message and like, oh, well, if he likes it then, or she likes it, then maybe this is somebody worth listening to. And now I get more followers. And, and my, ability, that, my ability to engage with that person, to gain knowledge, and to, to have mentors, and to have conversations and and to learn is un this is brand new not that you couldn't go to harvard or yale and meet a professor but but the limits the the, the pipe and the and the choke point to do that was so tiny that how are you going to find that really smart person who's in some little village in africa who just happens to have a smartphone whereas now that person can genuinely become a giant in the field in any field that's yeah. that's amazing and that's the power of social and i can i give it can i give a an anecdote. Sure. So, and I definitely, I'm not going to throw these two women under the bus because, but I was having a conversation with two, I would say like suburban mom types. Actually, I wasn't even in the conversation. I was sitting at a table and they were having a conversation talking about how the kids, like all they do, they're on their phones all the time. All they do is they're on their phones. They don't even know how to talk. They don't even know how to talk to each other. It's ridiculous. And I couldn't help it given my background. I, I sort of piped in and I'm like, are you sure? I'm like, I mean, they're, they're communicating, so, but they're just doing it on their phones. Like, how are they going to know how to like do it? You know, they don't know how to communicate like in real life or something that I said. And what I said was, listen, these are, these are people that communicate across multiple channels where each channel has its own norms and mores and, and skills. I mean, the difference of talking in emoji versus Snapchat versus text versus Facebook versus Instagram and, and house party, which is an insane thing that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that app, but just a constant conversation with other people who are in this room and they all have their own rules, right? And they, I would argue that they are much more sophisticated communicators and acquirers and distributors of information than, than we are. And if they can't Interesting. Easily talk to you in a synchronous way that you would, you grew up with. Okay. Yeah, it's fascinating because I would actually, I would actually, I don't want to say push back, but I would say that I'm, 
a little bit of the believer as well that while social, I agree with you, offers a lot of opportunities for engagement. And frankly, I love your perspective that it's a different way to communicate. At the same time, there are certain, let's call it communication skills, some niceties, some, some let's call it manners and things like that. Social, typically you cut to the chase. You know, you say yeah. what you want to say, you say it in shorthand, you say it in abbreviation and whatnot. And so probably what these moms were talking about is, you know, I have a kid, uh, we'll call up my house and want to talk to one of my kids. And the way that they just like jump in as if like, you know, no, hello, no, hi, it's so-and-so. Can I talk to, you know what I mean? It's like very kind of almost gruff and a little bit rough around the edges. And I train my kids and I say, look, when you call, you say, hi, this is so-and-so is, 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 you know, is my friend available? You know, something like that, just a normal thing. And that's probably where they're going with it a little bit. But at the same time, I love what you were sharing and the idea of having knowledge going back to the point previous about having yeah. knowledge into the platform and being able to say, no, there are plenty of people who are out there at social who have a lot of following who have to me no substance at all. I don't know what the appeal is and I don't want to waste my time with these folks. But there are people who really are very knowledgeable, capable, etc. They have massive followings. They have great content and they're using a platform that never would have been available to them until now. And so- They may never have been known. Yeah, so I'm curious in your industry- how is success measured? Is it measured based on volume and traffic? Is it measured based on other metrics? How do you see that you and your company are succeeding? Yeah, and to your other point, by the way, I would say that I don't let my kill, I don't let my kids yell at the Alexa. Uh huh. Okay. Fair enough. My, Talk kind. I'm like, listen, you have to say, I don't care about the machine. You have to, you can't scream at it. Say please. Um, so, look, success in in business obviously is always measured by sort of revenue and value and growth and things like that. And we have a variety of KPIs. I think for our type of company and certainly our company, I focus a lot on engagement. We have very high engagement and and I don't know how familiar you are with media metrics and I won't bore everyone with them, but you know, there's a lot of different ways that that media companies can be can be big. I mean, you can have a lot of people come to your site every day, but not stay because they come to look something up and they, they go, or you can have a few people that come every single day because they, they want to leave it open and, and learn all the time. Um, and then social sites, you know, we, we deal a lot with, they're called like DAOs and MAOs, so daily active users and monthly active users and the ratio of those. So how many people that come every day, uh, sorry, they come every month are also coming every day. And we're lucky that we have very, very high engagement at Stockbits. We have, we have uh, average active users spend 51 minutes a day on Stockbits, which is like an unbelievable metric. And I love, it's my favorite to, to talk about. But I think that the, that's the hard, the hard answer is, is things like traffic and revenue and engagement and time on site and things like that. The soft answer, which is really the one that we're trying to measure with those quantitative measurements, is... Are people gaining from our platform? Are they gravitating towards it because it's it's a it's something that helps them? I mean, that's what drives those metrics. Is if we didn't kick off bad actors, like we kick off thousands of people probably a day, who are just like, you know, they join to like pump up a stock or something like that, and we actually catch them even before they they can post a message by a variety of technical means. But like, let's say we didn't do that, like we were more like Twitter, just an open, you can do whatever you want. Then then people aren't going to come because they're not they're afraid to engage and they don't want to get yelled at and they don't want to get bad information. So I, the soft measure that we look for and that I look for is, are we helping people? Are people helping each other? Is the conversation fun and healthy? We actually asked our 
our members, our community recently, why are they on Stocktwits, right? So like, it's a very basic question and we kind of thought we knew, but we hadn't done a formal analysis in a while. And what's interesting is like the things that I think outsiders might perceive as like, oh, to, to beat the market. To beat the market was like 5%. 75% was in two answers, which is fun because it's fun. I like to talk to people and have fun and, and what, you know, I just want to sit and have these conversations. I love markets. I love talking to people about markets. And the second one was to get better. Nice. And uh, they get better from each other. Fantastic. So that's, how, that's how we really measure it. I've got I've got two more questions that I must get to in this segment because they're Sorry, like, I'll just keep talking. No, right? you're great. You're great. This is fantastic. Um, we could talk about this forever, but I, I do want to get a couple of things. Number one, and I'm really fascinated by this because you see this all the time about folks who are corporate refugees and you know they spend time in, in the corporate space and then they just want to do something different. Many of them become entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and all of this, but You've had time with large firms. I don't know if you consider Stocktwits a startup. Maybe at this point, I don't know if it still qualifies, but probably once upon a time, it would yeah. be a fair a fair title. What would you say are the biggest differences between those two two environments? Large companies and and, and yeah, startups. And startups yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is night and day. I remember when when I left MarketWatch to start Even, which is a seed stage company. Is Two founders, two co-founders, and I. At some point, somebody asked my wife, "Are you guys thinking about having a, a third, a third kid?" And, and Michelle said, uh, "We had a startup instead." <laughs> it's a it is a life changing thing, much in the way that you add a family member, where it is just completely absorbing. But that's but that's seed stage and that's founding. I think that the main difference and the main answer to your question comes more down to execution and accountability and impact. At a small company, you are absolutely recognized, like is clear as crystal, who is adding what value and who is able to move the ball forward. And, and with that comes accountability for when those things don't happen, which presents a totally different management challenge. It's something that I had to adjust to, where I think in a big company, you know, the impact of things are kind of muted. So you, it's more nuanced in terms of how you handle, how you manage, you know, everything can be kind of swept a little bit under the rug, which is not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. You have the opportunity to sort of like grow through mistakes in a different way. Whereas at a small company, whether it's your mistake or others, it's clear to everybody that the impact of every decision is important. So the challenge and the opportunity is to be able to grow people into a culture where, listen, it's okay. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to work with somebody. The worst thing would be to not tell me something that's wrong, but we can work through this together. I mean, when I was at a big company, I had a, a great boss who I was struggling to complete a project and I didn't want to go to her. And, and, and eventually I went to her and she's like, oh, that's okay. We'll work on it together and we'll fix it. I mean, that was a huge lesson for me that you know, 20 years later, when I, when I started working with small companies, I don't want anyone to be afraid of the consequences of, of their decisions such that they won't raise it. Yeah, I want to grow people that are able to be comfortable learning and being transparent. And there's no consequence to being wrong if you're going through the process the right way. We'll all figure this out together. But there's there's a big problem if, if you're not being clear about what's happening because I can't afford that lack of transparency. Yeah, it's fascinating. I actually had a, one of my previous podcasts, which is already live, was with John Brodsky. I don't know if you know John over at find over at finder.com. And one of the last things we talked about was this issue of 
being open and honest. I forget the exact title that they call it in their company, but they have a term for it. You can check it in the show notes. I'll, I'll send it over to you. But the idea right. is that same concept, like you have to be willing to say what's working, what is it, not to hide things because at the end of the day, the company's going to suffer, the culture is going to suffer, right. relationships are going to suffer. And so actually, before I get to my final question, since you said all of this great stuff, I want to ask you one quick follow-up and that is, how do you see as your company grows? I don't know that it'll ever necessarily reach the size of market watch or reach the size. I know you were at Goldman and some of these other firms as well. But as your company grows, how do you as CEO try to maintain the balance of growing company, but at the same time, the benefits of the impact, if you will, uh, and engagement that you currently can provide your employees? In other words, how do you allow them or give them the opportunity to still be impactful in their work as you get larger and larger? Yeah. So a hundred percent, the answer to that is hiring, which is, I think not the exact, like most common answer. But when, when we had 10 people, when I first joined, I said to them that, listen, this is our core. Every single person that we hire, you are going to be mentoring and growing them. Like this is our core. Every other person that we get is going to take from you the culture and the beliefs and the, and the, and what's okay and what's not okay. So I want to make sure this core is exactly right because when we have 30 people, like now we have 31 people, I know everyone, but I don't know everyone as well, but I know that the people who are working with them were from a core that, that grew in terms of being impactful. I take genuine pleasure and I'm sure you do too as a teacher, like of like seeing people grow into different roles and taking on new skills and doing well. And I remember I've told people a hundred times in my career, like, listen, I'm not going to let you fail. Like you're, you're not going to break the machine, like do this and I'm going to help you through it. And when you're done, you'll know how to do it, but I'm not going to like, you know, leave you without a net. And then that person is able to have this new skill set. And if you teach the 10 people, they do that with 20 people and the 30 people. And the other, the only other thing I would, I, I shamelessly use that Lombardi quote about like, listen, if we, if we do well, you guys did it. If, if we, if we tie, we did it together. And if we fail, like that's yeah. my fault. And if you teach people yeah. to do that, and you create loyalty and, and people want to work with you. Yeah, I thought I, th- I saw something similar in Bear Bryant, the same concept. That's for sure. I might even have the coach wrong. <laughs> it might have been. It might have been. It could be. Either way, they were both great. So that's that. Look, it should be our biggest problem. So final question before we pivot, and that is, I mentioned at the very beginning, David Siegel, the one who connected us. Yeah. So it speaks to me. I would never have met you had I not met him, right? And so relationships are really important. I try to go to as many networking events I think will be meaningful to me as I can. I try to network with people online and build relationships socially, virtually, et cetera. So tell me how relationships, again, like it seems that people are operating in a, in, in a corporate space, you know, you've got the people you work with, but it's hard to know necessarily how those relationships are helping you beyond the immediate day-to-day. What advice do you have for people who are looking to build relationships and really want to build relationships of value, specifically that will help them grow as professionals and in their business? <laughs> yeah, don't be a jerk. I think careers are <laughs> careers are long. People move around. I still interact with people that I met in my first jobs. And those relationships are everything. You end up doing things for people. Like Very few people care so deeply about the, especially a larger company they work for, but they care a lot about helping out your buddy, Joe or Mary or whatever. And, you know, when, when big companies cut travel, when they're trying to cut expenses, like I, I've never been a person that likes to do that. I know that's like the most common thing because I am very, I'm much more likely to help this other person on the other end of the phone because I've had a beer with them than if they're just like an email. And that goes in my company, in other companies I've been at, and certainly across companies. I mean, 
David Siegel is a great example. I mean, we've been to events together. We've been in the space together. We've never worked directly with each other other than like as, you know, partners. We've never been in the same company. But I know that if I have, you know, a request, I can be like, hey, listen, do you know, do you know the answer? And he can do the same. And I think it's everything. But the, but the main advice, which is the question you asked, would be treat people well, be honest, be helpful, help people even if it doesn't help you. You don't, not just because it's going to come back to you, which it will, but just because the main asset that I have and that all of us have in business, I'm probably in life, is your reputation. I mean, that's what you have. Like, ultimately, if, if this or that opportunity blows up or in a good way or a bad way, like, there's going to be people that are going to be, you know what, Ian's a good dude, let's, let's work with him. Or Ian's not a good dude. He's, you know, was screwed me over for, for money one time and forgot it, you know? And I think that I try very hard to, to be a good person. Sometimes you have to make all kinds of hard decisions that people don't like, but you yeah. can do it transparently and fairly. Sure. And I think we're going to have to move the conversation eventually from the podcast to the uh, coffee room or beer or whatever it is that you like <laughs> so we can get to know yeah. each other, but that'd be great. So now we are going to pivot to our rapid fire. And as I mentioned in our pre-podcast conversation, answers are short and sweet and to the point. So three, right, action, three action steps that every leader should do every day. I think get get a hold of what you have to do that day. What's the most important thing that has to come out of this day? The MIT is great. Yeah. Take time to be thoughtful about your answers as opposed to just like being a machine part, but like be thoughtful about like what your answer is and, and think about things from the other people in the room's perspective. Nice. Like I spend a lot of time, like how is, how is this other person perceiving what I'm saying and what's their impact? That's fascinating. You know, typically I'll get an answer like exercise, sleep well, you know, take care of things, set your goals. And you did do some of that as well. But I think it's fascinating that you talk about getting into the minds of others, being thoughtful and considerate. Really, really powerful. Yeah, no, that's great. If you could plaster a message on a massive billboard, maybe there's still space in New York City. I'm not sure. What would it, what would it say? <laughs> for, for a lot of money. Um, yeah, for a lot of money. And that is, that is a tough question. But I would say if I could do one, be, be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. Okay. Yes. I think we just need to spend more time on that. Something about the market that most people don't know. It's a collection of people. I think that's very powerful. Go ahead. For this, you could elaborate. Yeah. I mean, the market is not like a thing for every, everything sold, something is bought. And both of those people think that they're right. Uh And there's a story behind why that happened. And even you can talk about all these machines. Yeah, there are all these machines and there are all these like, you know, giant funds and there, but there's somebody sitting at desks making decisions about how all that happens. And and those decisions are impacted by the biases of humans. And that's what, that's the story you tell. Absolutely. And finally, why should non-New Yorkers visit Wall Street and the Big Apple in general? Well, in other words, you know, some people have a phobia, they're scared of New York. Why should people come and visit? Listen, with with no disrespect to your to your wife, who's from Chicago, it's the greatest city in the world. Uh-huh. The New York City is the I, in my view, which is of course one hundred percent correct, the <laughs> the perfect the perfect blend of what America should be. You have all people, all different types, seamlessly interacting in close quarters at all times, perfectly fine. I mean, and you can highlight out this bad action, that bad action, but you you have millions of people who have wildly different experiences every single day that that have a tremendous amount of like physical and mental proximity and it's all works fine i mean yeah this is what it's supposed to be right you know it's fascinating i know we're 
we're both Jewish, and so I, I think of the, the biblical story of the Jews in the desert as they after they left Egypt. And so, you know, the, the Bible, the Torah details problem after problem. If you read the narrative about this fighting and this issue and rebelling and all this, and I remind myself, and I used to remind my students, they were upwards of three million people in close quarters for 40 years, and we only <laughs> have about half a dozen problems, which if you think about it, it's exactly what you're describing. It's really the same issue. It's a matter right. of perspective. It's like, yeah, we could shine the light on all the problems, but we could also shine the light on all of the interaction, the engagement, the the, the way people get along with one another. And even if they're not always saying hello to you as they pass by, it's only because in my mind, there's so many people, it's almost impossible to do it. Otherwise, you'd be, like a, you'd be like a head on a swivel the entire time. Greatest city, greatest country in the world because, because of the fact that it doesn't implode every single day. That's right. So tell us, tell our listeners, Lead to Succeed Nation, how they can connect with you, Ian. Where can they find you online? Anything else you want to share about yourself that we haven't discussed? Sure. I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at Ian Rosen. Um, I'm pretty much at Ian Rosen. A lot of places, StockTwits is www.stocktwits.com or at StockTwits on Twitter, on Instagram, LinkedIn. As a social media person, I'm, I'm easy to find. Easy to find. <laughs> I can imagine. So before we go today, Ian, leave us with one final life lesson. Oh, God. As a media person, I'm conscious of the fact that there's a constant narrative of what's wrong in the world, in, in the city, in, in the country. But we live in an unbelievably good time. And we should appreciate the, what a time to be alive, the genuine miracle that our, for the most part, safe, opulent existence with access to all of human knowledge, to, to be creative. To, we live in an incredible time, and I wish people would appreciate that more often. Super powerful. Great positive, optimistic way to end the conversation. And so thank you, Ian. Really, really has been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit. I will definitely take you up on that opportunity to get to know you better. And uh, certainly appreciate you coming on the show with me today. I appreciate being here. Likewise, I'm looking forward. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to head over to impactfulcoaching.com where you can sign up for our blog, download free leadership eBooks and so much more.